Uh, good morning. It's good to be back. My name is Kent, if I haven't met you. My name is Kent, if I have met you. It's not a conditional identity. Um, I, my uh, family and I always take a couple weeks in July to um, get out, go to the place where all people vacation, Nebraska. And uh, it really is a good setup for us. We enjoy it. It's a great vacation. Um, but I always miss, I miss the body. But this year was unique. Uh, I guess last year it was true, too. Uh, I could observe the gathering from afar, which is always fun, because you get to find out what the elders really think of me. Um, Dante throws shade at my movie references, which is actually, uh, that's, that's well documented that, anecdotally speaking at least, that Dante and I do not see eye to eye in what constitutes as a good film. And, um, and John uh, posits that he is the only uh, elder that watches a time clock and therefore ends, which is not true. I do watch a time clock. I do not end. Um, but it is, uh, as Tayshan said, hotter than the devil's toenails in here. Another reason why it's good to get out in July. If you take your vacation, think about this. Also a good thing that we got a front row culture developing. This is, was our master plan to make us more of a front row church than a back row Betty church. Uh, either way, we are going to be in starting the second half of Daniel. And we have been talking about the second half of Daniel somewhat ominously for a couple weeks because it gets uh, weird, is the theological term, and um, there are a number of veggie tales made of the first half of Daniel. To my knowledge, there are no veggie tales made of the second half of Daniel. It, I would be down for it if there were, though. If there was, like, seizuring asparagus and, like, four-headed rutabaga and stuff like that, that'd be, I'd be down for that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, to this point, there's not. We are uh, going to go to Daniel chapter 8, not 7. And that is because, as I've been saying throughout the series, there is a structure to Daniel that is two halves. There is the first six chapters of narrative and the second ch six chapters of prophecy. But then there is also a micro or maybe a structure within the structure, which is chapters two through seven are in Aramaic, and then one and eight through 12 are in Hebrew. And that this Aramaic section starts to pair up of two matches seven and three matches six and four matches five. And so then you get chapter seven, which is the overlap of when it has transitioned to Aramaic but has not gone back to Hebrew, but yet it has also transitioned from narrative to prophecy, very much so then making most theologians, I would say there's a decent amount of agreement that chapter seven is the pinnacle of Daniel, uh, of, of Daniel, and so therefore, we are going to make that the last teaching, not the middle teaching, and there's actually a good amount of evidence that it actually was originally the last chapter. So anyway, we're going to chapter 8, which is fun because I spent most of my Friday studying uh, Daniel 7, and then I remembered this was the case, and so at 3.30, I switched to Daniel 8. Um, so, we've got about two and a half hours of my thoughts, but... Uh, I think we got something. I think this, this, this holds up. Either way, uh, Daniel 8 actually is kind of perfect, too, to kick off the second half of Daniel because Daniel 8 provides a pretty good example of how to deal with prophecy, how to think about prophecy. And that's basically what I want to use Daniel 8 this morning to do. I want to give you a more helpful way 
to think of prophetic literature, because most of us probably come from a background or tradition that thinks of prophecy as more like Left Behind or Frank Peretti novels or all the classic, like, you know, uh, 88 reasons the world is going to end in 1988, and then that didn't come true, so the next year they released 89 reasons the world's going to end in 1989. He also went for 23 reasons in 93, and final warning, 94. Um, and there is also, uh, let's see, uh, was this in our lifetime, uh, or in recent history, uh, Pastor Harold Camping. He was actually more of a radio personality in California, in Oakland. Uh, for Family Radio, and in 2005, uh, I believe, he comes up with a prediction that he broadcasts nationally that the world is going to end on the 21st of May, 2011, around 6 p.m. This guy goes for about the time of day. And it's going to be an unprecedented earthquake. 2% uh, roughly of the world would be raptured, and that would be the beginning of Judgment Day. And there would be this widespread ad campaign that he would put out, both through his radio as well as he would commit $100,000 to campaign dollars, not of his own, I'm sure, of what he raised to the radio program, in order to promote this on billboards and nationally, and it got covered in news stories. About every uh, group of atheists just took this and just took him to task on it, as well as a handful amount of Christian uh, organizations of just saying, like, this really doesn't line up with anything that we see scripturally. And then uh, he said, though, it was going to happen on May 21st, but then it would conclude with a, uh, a full rapture on October 21st. And then when May 21st came and went, and the 6 p.m. hour just had a lot of people eating dinner, uh, they then bumped it up as saying, well, a spiritual judgment did happen, but the physical judgment is going to happen on October 21st. Uh, after October 21st, about a week later, he retired from his radio program. Uh, they claimed actually it was from health problems. Uh, he lived an additional two years. However, to his credit, in March of 2012, when he could have gone for the whole Mayan calendar thing in May, he instead is interviewed as saying, I was wrong. My critics were right to criticize me. Uh, I now realize that Matthew 24 clearly states, no one knows the day or the hour, and I repent of that evil. And so I got to say, I, hand, I, I give him credit. He, he, uh, at least, he didn't spend $100,000 in billboards saying that, but at least he said it. The problem is, again, is that that's what we think of when we think of apocalyptic literature. We think of, like, this is all the end times. How do you interpret this? You know, like, I mean, are the locusts of Revelation, the Ukrainian-Russian conflict in some way, how does this all map out? Onto, you know, where does Brexit come in? Oh, man, we didn't see that one coming. And, and so... I want to posit that that is actually not the purpose of apocalyptic prophecy literature. In fact, uh, I really uh, appreciate uh, how the Bible Project uh, rephrases the view of apocalyptic or, uh, prophecy literature. That uh, they make point in their uh, apocalyptic series that the word apocalypse doesn't even mean end times. We've just come to make that synonymous with end times. But the word apocalypse means to reveal or uncover. That what the point of revelation is, what the point of Daniel's revelation is, the revelation of the Old Testament, is to unveil history as God sees it. And to therefore unveil reality as God sees it. That's the entire purpose. Are there predictive things that happen in apocalyptic prophecy? Absolutely. Is that the main point? Absolutely not. It is to reveal and that you may see how God sees history and to see it with him. And therefore, 
you might see how God sees reality in history and see it with him. So that's what I want to do. We're going to read Daniel 8 to do that. Daniel 8, verse 1. In the third year of the king Belteshazzar, so this is the king who Dante taught on uh, two weeks ago, uh, who gets the hand on the wall, meaning, meaning, tickle, parson, uh, and is killed. Uh, but this is actually going back. So just to give you chronology, uh, the first and back half of the books do overlap. So chapters 7 and 8, they, all the prophecies are given to you in a chronological order. 7 and 8 happen first, and they happen in the time of Belteshazzar, approximately that time between Nebuchadnezzar and Belteshazzar in that period. Uh, then uh, chapters 9 through 10, I believe, is, are going to happen uh, later in the, when the Persian Empire is really heating up and getting going, and then I, even when the Grecian Empire is going to be going. And then chapters 11 and 12 uh, are the most recent things written in Daniel. Uh, and then it's after a lot of that. We'll get into it as we go through. Uh, but either way, just to let you know, we are now going back to that time. Third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that, which appeared to me at the first... And I saw the vision. He's referring at the, at the first, he's referring to the vision he saw in uh, chapter 7. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I, uh, I was in Susa, the citadel, which was in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was in Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing at the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up first, or came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power, as did, or he did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat. I also love uh, most translations that says he goat. I always love when I can just say he goat. Uh, so I'm going to go with he goat. Behold, a he goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the he goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram, and with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he had at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together, and the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will be truth to the ground, or sorry, and it will, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolation, and the giving over the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. 
when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uliah. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what it shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw of the two horns, these are the great kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four, horn, uh, four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that have been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled of the vision and did not understand it. The text says to Daniel from Gabriel, Interpreting very clearly, this is why this is a good starter. We actually get the interpretation to a level. He says, this is for the end times. The question is that theologians have discussed throughout history is what does he mean when he says end times? Does he mean the end times of all the earth, as in the full culmination of history and the new heavens and the new earth? Or does he mean the end of the persecution of Israel at this time that these events are going to lead to? Spoiler, it's both. Let's first deal with the, kneel, the near. Again, this also comes from uh, the Bible project that I just think is really helpful. As you think of prophecy, the good illustration is thinking of a mountain range where when you look at a mountain range, I know a lot of you have hiked the mountain ranges of Indiana, uh, but if you've been outside and you've seen actual mountain ranges, not perfect north, no, may that, may that fall into a pit. Um, regardless, if you actually go to real mountain ranges, uh, I grew up in West Nebraska, by the way. Uh, Denver was three and a half hours away. It, I just, I can't go to those places. I will not. I cannot bring my children to those places and let them assume that that is what skiing is. That is not skiing. Um, either way, if you go to actual mountain ranges, you will see there is a near mountain, and beyond that, you will see more mountains, and beyond that, you will see further mountains, and you can see these peaks and valleys that roll, and that is ultimately what's going on when you read a prophecy. 
you will see a near peak of there is a near translation or a near fulfillment, typically, of a prophecy that is given in the Scriptures. But then you can look forward and see out in the distance a further prophecy that you often might see in the New Testament or maybe in early church history. But then you look further out still and you will see how this prophecy is completely relevant today. And so let's look at the first mountain in the range. Daniel, approximately uh, in the middle of the 6th century, I believe this is about 553, this prophecy, but I forgot to double check that. Either way, it's about the middle of the 6th century BC. Daniel is saying he gets a vision. He's sitting in the city of Susa. And Belteshazzar is still king. Babylon is still its own nation. But that there's this goat that comes, or it's not the goat, first it's a ram with two horns, one larger than the other. And these are two kings, the kings of Medea, the king of Medea, and the king of Persia, which becomes a greater nation. And not only that, Susa, the citadel, that is actually in Persia. That is going to become the future center of power once Babylon falls to this king, or these kings. And they come in, and again, they just basically do what they say. They rip through the countries, and they just take all people and take no prisoners, or they do take some prisoners, but again, they just uh, expand their territory. And then Alexander the Great descends upon history and the Grecian Empire, and he conquers the entire known world, and he, streaks, uh, he strikes down the Medea and Persian Empire like they're nothing. But he does this, by the way, all by the time he's in his, he's age 30. I mean, he's just, by the time he hits 30, he has conquered the entire known world. I will often bring up, if you need to feel really insecure about your 20s, study Andrew the Great. And, but the only thing is, is like, he does conquer the whole, no, the whole known world, and then he promptly dies at age 33. And out of that raise his four children, and there's this whole war over who's going to become these four empires that will now see over four parts of Greece just as the horn breaks and four horns grow up. And then you get in one of the specific empires, the Seleucus Empire, which is going to become what that was, that little horn that grew towards the south and starts small but grows and becomes extremely boastful and not only boastful towards the kingdoms of the world, but becomes boastful to the host of heavens. Because Seclusius, who is the first one to receive the power of the south area by Andrew the Great, eight kings later, there will come Antiochus. And Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus, depending on how you prefer to say it. And Antiochus is inheriting his portion of the Grecian Empire at a time where there is a lot of rebellion going on. It is in need of a very strong presence to crush the rebellion. Antiochus is the man for the job. He was known as being extremely harsh, extremely wicked, and extremely eccentric. He decides he is going to not only unite through his power uh, militarily, but he also wants to unite the kingdom theologically under the god of Zeus, 
of which he purports himself to be the physical embodiment of Zeus. And so he takes the coin of his era. It is not a new thing at this point to put the ruler's face on the coin, whose image rules over this, this man's image. But what he does at this point that is unique is that he puts Antiochus, Epiphanes, the manifest god. He's the first one to put the equivalent of in God we trust, but it is an Antiochus we trust. So that everyone, when they paid with their coin, would recognize this isn't just our ruler, this is our God manifest in humanity. So then, in the midst of this, you get Jerusalem, the beautiful land, by the way. That was when Persia and Medea starts butting all directions, and they go after the Palestine area, which was the Holy Land. That was the beautiful land that they referred to. And Jerusalem, of course, is in the midst of all this tumult and all this getting passed around by different kingdoms. And at this point, there's a a discrepancy of who should be the next high priest at the temple while Antiochus is reigning. And the initial high priest is given to Jason, who is pro-Greek. So Antiochus names him the high priest because he's going to be on his side. But then a couple years later, we get... Oh, gosh, where was his name? Starts with the M. Malleus? That's uh, going to come to me. Ah, Menelius. There we go. Thank you. A couple years later, we get Menelius. Important to note about Menelius. He's not a descendant of Aaron. He has no right to be the high priest. But he pays Antiochus a higher bribe. And so he displaces Jason, becomes the high priest. Immediately, he decides, I'm going to plunder the temple. I'm going to take everything for the temple for myself. This causes a huge riot, and Jason returns to lead a revolt, overthrowing uh, Manulus at this point. And Antiochus finds this to take this very personal. And so he then comes into Jerusalem, he takes back over and forces martial law and decides to make it a fortified city because he'd always been skeptical of Egypt, and so it was this place where he could now kind of keep a base close to Egypt. And then he does something really fateful in history on December 16th, 167 BC. He enters into the temple, and there's a bit of discrepancy of does he remove the altar? and replace it with a relic of Zeus, which was probably a meteorite that they found, and they decided that this was something sent to them by Zeus? Or does he take a pig and sacrifice it on the altar to Zeus, but with, this was still Yahweh's altar that was standing? A lot of people are going to say both. Nothing happens on December 16th, by the way. He goes on. Life goes on. Other than the riots and the revolts really start to pick up now. And you get the Maccabean era. This is between Old and New Testament, where we see the Maccabeans were this group of rebel priests that decide to take back the temple in Jerusalem by force, which, by the way, if there's ever an open invitation to a group of rebel priests, I have enough punk rock in me to be totally down for that. I'm at least going to be tempted. I'm at least going to be tempted. Either way, uh, this group of rebel priests and the, Mac the Maccabeans, as they call them, are going to forcefully push 
out because of their anger, their wrath, and their ability. They're going to push out Antiochus and push out the Grecian Empire. This is actually what we, they celebrated Hanukkah. This is the story of Hanukkah. And so as they push out the, uh, them and they stay in the temple and they only have one day of oil, but it lasts for these eight days and they're able to survive, Antiochus is still really interested in Jerusalem. In fact, he doesn't want to give it up. So he decides he's going to fight, but at the same time, uh-oh, we have from the east the Parthians. The Parthians use this moment that Antiochus is all focused westward to attack from the east. So Antiochus sends his general westward, and he decides to go and fight off and send a message to the Parthians eastward. The only problem is, one day, he gets some stomach disease, not given by any human hand is he killed by, and very quickly deteriorates and dies, thus ending the reign of Antiochus. In fact, the book of 2 Maccabees, and I don't know if you ever thought you were going to read from apocryphal literature in church, here we go. Apocryphal literature, 2 Maccabees 9, verse 5 through 9, says this, do I have this? If I don't, listen along. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him with an incurable and invisible blow. As soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels, for which there was no relief, and with sharp internal tortures, and that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange inflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, but he was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to drive even faster. And so it came about that he fell out of his control as he was rushing along and fall was so hard as his, uh, sorry, as fell out of his chariot, fell out of his chariot as he was rushing along and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. Thus, he who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh the mount, high mountains in a balance was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms, and while he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away. And because of the stench, the whole army felt revulsion at its decay. All of which I've just told you happens four centuries after Daniel. Perfect lining up. Daniel accurately dates back to the 6th century BC. This is 2nd century. But apocalypse, apocalyptic literature does not mean the end of the world. It means uncovering to see history and reality as God sees it. Because this same theme is going to get picked up. Again, when it says, hey, this appointed time of the end, it's going to deal with types. Antiochus is a type. The Persians and the Medeans are types. They are very much so something that God is going to deal with exactly as he lays it out in Daniel 8. But there are little horns that continue and persist to this day and have persisted all throughout history. In fact, again, you can think through the peaks and the valleys, and even when we're in the valleys, there's still things going on. In fact, let's just go to another peak here. 
Uh, this one's going to be in New Testament. Mark 13. Jesus is going to be teaching his disciples, and he says this. Uh, flip to Mark 13. I don't have this. If you have it, flip, flip with me, or if you want to listen to it. I actually sometimes appreciate just having Scripture read over me and just closing my eyes. You can do that too. Mark 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. <laughs> I love that response. Look at these amazing buildings. They will be destroyed. Um, thanks, Jesus. <laughs> uh, let's go party with someone else. All right. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nations will rise against a nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does, not, belong, uh, not belonging, let the reader understand that then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. They do not have a nursing mother's room like we do on the second floor of the gallery. Pray that it will not take place in winter. Because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And the Lord had not cut short those days. No one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At the time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the earth of the earth to the earth, ends of, of the heavens. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happen, you will know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words will never pass away. Or heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father be on guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. 
It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Just less than 40 years later, 70 AD, the temple will fall in Jerusalem, and no brick will stand on another. That's a near horizon. But then Isaiah, a prophecy in 24 and 25, talked about the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem. Again, for Isaiah, it was a bit more of a medium-level medium range prophecy. And then the disciples are going to say, hey, when's this going to come? And Jesus' answer is like, yeah, you're going to know about the time just like you know when a fig's about to blossom because you're going to see wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation, earthquakes, famines, persecution, betrayal. To which you can kind of be like, are we living in the end times? Because I check down that checklist. But the reality is we are not in this unique time where these things have been true. These things have been true in every generation on every land. I mean, just take going across uh, different continents. Um, Europe, during the Black Death in the 14th century, experiences a huge amount of death through plague. China, during the Mongol invasion of the 13th century and under Mao in the 20th century, experiences uh, a great, powerful, antichrist-like figure. Americas, during a co uh, colonization, experienced much war. Europe, during World War I and eventually World War II. Africa during the famine of the 80s and the Rwanda genocide in the 90s. Every generation, the human condition is revealed. Evil rulers rise to power, empires fall, violence, destruction, despair, and death. The fall of Jerusalem is a moment in history that is a peak, so to speak, of the prophecy. But the representative type of the fall of the temple, of the wars and betrayal, and that is going to continue to repeat throughout history, and you will see peak and peak and peak of Jesus' prophetic word going on, because he's not just predicting the future. He's saying, I want you to see history the way I see it, and therefore I want you to see reality the way I see it. Yeah, the temple's going to fall. There's going to be war, betrayal, death, disease, tyrants. Because that's the reality of the world in which we live. I remember in COVID, a lot of people were like, is this the end times? This seems like the end times. Yes. Doesn't mean that the new heavens and new earth are going to come anytime soon. They are just as much the end times as... 40 years after Jesus when the temple fell. The end times are not to say, we're almost there. Like, this is the last one. It's to say, this is the last act of humanity. There's not coming another Messiah to start things and to build a new church, that there was this time where God is 
in communion with man, and then a time where we break away, and then they're going to be trying to rebuild that through Noah and through Cain and Abel, and it's going to fail, and there's going to be a time to rebuild it through Abraham. And Abraham's going to fail, but yet he's going to continue to work with him and move with him. And through the line of Abraham, there is going to come both a man and one who is able to fully pay for the sacrifice of sin and the sacrifice of all our holiness in Jesus. And then that is going to spawn the time of Jesus' departure and his spirit coming to fill the church so that Jesus' work continues through us. There's no other period between now and new heavens and new earth. It might last for millennia. It might go for millennia from now, this point forward. But there's no other type of new era coming. The church will lead to filling the world with Jesus' presence and his kingdom being earth, done on earth as it is in heaven until the new heavens and the new earth fully come. It doesn't matter how you interpret the millennium of Revelation, that is ultimately how it plays out. So then what does this say to us today? And we'll end here because it's hot and I'm sweating, but that's not unique. I sweat every Sunday. It's why I never fail to wear dark colors. And those weeks that I don't, you all recognize it when I do this. Um, so we get a vision from Daniel in the 6th century BC and that informs the times we're living in today and as we already see yeah you can look at leaders rising up being boastful claiming the authority of God deceiving and throwing truth to the ground I haven't said any specific name. You're probably thinking of multiple. Whichever one you choose, the interpretation is the same. This is reality as God sees it. There will continue to be wicked, boastful rulers. There will continue to be war and the rumor of war in Ukraine, across Europe, across Africa. There will continue to be lying and deceit and selling out the souls of your own family to be safe or to make a buck or to get ahead. And in that, as we, those indwelt with the Spirit of God, who have been renewed through the sacrifice and infusion of the Spirit of Jesus are to live in these times and to not be deceived. Every time someone shows up and says, hey church, this is the moment that we need to stand against and there is nothing that cannot be rationalized for us to askew our way of following Jesus because it's that important. If this country gets in power, if this person gets in power, this is all over. This is that serious, so you can not really worry about if you continue to function with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control because it's that important. That is a damnable lie. Do not be deceived. That's a lie that's been playing out from the beginning. Do not be deceived. 
if you hear that, I don't care what source it is, you'd be wise to move away from it. So we're on our guard. We're not deceived. Because what we do is like Jeremiah 31. We build homes. We make gardens. We take families. We become a family. We seek to overcome a culture of hatred and death and destruction by loving our enemies, turning the other cheek. Yes, Daniel is going to make it clear. Lots of us, whether in this country or around the world, whether in this time or around the world, are going to be slaughtered for this. That's always the point of just like, man, like, how can we not do anything when like if China gets in control, oh my gosh, what's going to happen there? We might get slaughtered. Yeah. Not trying to be a fear monger here. I'm not trying to say that's what would happen. I'm just saying if it does happen, you were informed. There's no point where you say this, this is worth giving up following Jesus, the way he's laid out to follow Jesus, because it's so dire. And we continue to bless those who persecute. We build his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray for the power to do that. Father God, Lord, I pray for, Lord, there to be not a spirit of promoting lies in this moment, but there would be continually a spirit in the church of that which renounces lies, no matter if they come from those who we dislike or those who we like. And we pick up our cross, which for some of our brothers and sisters this very day they will not only carry their cross, they will be nailed to it and persecuted on it, possibly crucified on it. Some of that's a metaphor, some of it's not. So Lord, I pray for faith in the great anomaly that is the protected Western church. Lord, I praise God that we are enjoying this season of protection. I pray, Lord, that it would continue. But if and when it ends, Lord, I pray that we would take heart, Daniel 8, and know that whatever the conditions, though the little horn of our day may look like he has won, though he may slaughter thousands or millions, that you are in control that you can break kings and kingdoms and powers with an invisible stomach bug. So Lord, we trust you. I pray for the grace to trust you more as we continue forward in the end times, bringing your kingdom as it is in heaven. Amen.